I hope you uh, got uh, lesson sheets as you came in. I mentioned that we were not on a set schedule as far as how much we anticipated covering every week. And there, but there were two outlines out. Uh, actually, there was just one when I came, but it was on chapter two, and I'm not on chapter two yet. So if you've got chapter one and two, that's fine. You can be looking ahead, and uh, you can be uh, thinking about what uh, is in the, in that second chapter as well as in this chapter. Last week we looked at some introductory matters as we began our study. Of First and Second Thessalonians, and I gave you what I hoped was helpful information about the city of Thessalonica and its history. Uh, we we looked uh, biblically at the beginning of the church in Thessalonica, according to the Book of Acts, uh, and we even uh, thought about some of the concerns that Paul must have had in mind when. Uh, he had left Thessalonica uh, and prompted the writing of uh, this letter. Uh, we also looked at a couple of verses in chapter 1. Uh, I didn't really intend last week to cover any verses, but for the benefit of anybody who wasn't here last week, and for my own sake, I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 1, and I want to expand some on what I said last week. I noted with you last week that ancient letters are, were written slightly different, in a slightly different fashion from those written today. Uh, we put the person to whom the letter goes first, we end the letter with our names, the person who writes the letter. Uh, I, I say that. I got to thinking as I was making my notes on this, I hope you remember what a letter is. Uh, I mean a real letter. I don't mean an email message, a real letter. Is it, did anybody here get a letter in the last week from a friend or relative? A, a real letter. You did? You are exceptional. Somebody loves you, Stan. Anyway, in, in ancient letters, that the, the process was different in that the writer typically identified himself first and then addressed the recipients um, after he had told who the message was coming from. And, and that's what happens in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Three names are given at the beginning of the letter. Paul Silvanus and Timothy. Who were these three men who are sending this letter? Well, Paul, of course, first uh, is well known to us. His first appearance in Scripture comes at the end of Acts 7. I want you to look there for just a moment, if you will. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I recognize that. But I want you to go back to Acts 7 and... At the end of Acts 7, as Stephen has, is being stoned to death by hateful Jews, uh, we are told that, uh, that, that, that Paul was uh, 
lay in verse 58, witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. A couple of things you note. First of all, a young man. He is called by Luke. Uh, but, but we don't like what we see because he seems to be a, a participant or at least a, a, an agreeer to what is going on. But there's no doubt about it when you go to chapter 8 of Acts because he is a zealous persecutor as we see in chapter 8. If you look at verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committed them to prison. So so zealous was he that he asked for letters of permission to go to Damascus to look out, search for Christians, to capture them and bring them back. So likely they would be executed. They would be tried, but that would be a sham. In Acts 9, as you know, a drastic change takes place because uh, Saul, who becomes known to us as Paul, um, undergoes that experience of the light from heaven and then he goes in to the city, he's told what to do, Ananias tells him he is baptized. And that conversion changes everything. Um he immediately begins to preach. If you look at chapter 9 of Acts and verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He becomes as zealous a preacher as he was a persecutor. That did not change. His zeal did not change. What you see as you read about Paul and his ministry is that he was grateful for what had been done for him and he maintained an, an, an air of humility about him. He was not um, boastful or proud of, of himself. Uh, look, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning at verse 12. Listen how he talks about himself. I thank God, Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it in ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Chief of sinners. Uh, and so Paul was not uh, arrogant. He was a man of much learning. Uh, he had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel a very skilled, well-known Jewish teacher. Uh, he had advanced by his own statement above many of his own uh, peers. Uh, but he devoted himself to ministry, to preaching the gospel. Generally, it is believed that First and Second Thessalonians, I mentioned this last week, are among Paul's earliest letters. 
they are generally dated about 51 or 52 A.D. The last letter that Paul wrote is believed to be 2 Timothy, and that, that was written about 67 A.D. Now, if those dates are close to correct, and they are close at least, that means that there, there were about 16 or so years that Paul was writing letters to churches and individuals. We know that he produced 13 of them, perhaps 14, depending on whether he wrote Hebrews or not. It, that has been debated. Some think he did, and many think he didn't. But if that is correct, 13 or 14, this represents about 25% of the New Testament. And so here is one man who has written a fourth of all that we have in the New Testament. He does not, in this letter, designate himself as an apostle, which is interesting. He doesn't do it here. He doesn't do it in 2 Thessalonians. He doesn't do it in, at the introduction of Philippians, nor in the letter to Philemon. In nine of the other letters, he does mention that he is an apostle. Now, you think about that, and of course Hebrews doesn't count because no writer's name is mentioned, and so uh, and the salutation is not given either. Um, some someone might think, why would he not? Since since he did to other churches, why did he not? introduce himself or call himself an apostle. And some would say this. They would say, well, probably because there is no challenge yet to his apostleship. And as you know, there was that challenge. Uh, however, that argument doesn't hold very well because we believe Galatians was written before 1 and 2 Thessalonians and he definitely defends his apostleship in the letter to the Galatians. And so another reason probably would have to be found and my guess, note guess, is that his relationship with them is such and so close in time has the relationship existed, that he doesn't need to tell them he's an apostle. They know who he is. There's no doubt. Now, when you think about Philippians, you can understand why he didn't address himself as an apostle. This is a church that, that he felt very close to, and they had helped him many times. They would never need to be told he was an apostle. Nor would Philemon, because Paul has a relationship with him and is asking him for a personal favor. He didn't need to stress his authority as an apostle. Just something to think about. Silvanus is the Roman equivalent of Silas, the, the Hebrew name. And so Silvanus would be what the Romans would call him. Silas would be what the Hebrew-speaking people would call him. The Hebrew name Silas appears more than Silvanus 13 times, beginning first at Acts 15.22 and going all the way the final time at Acts 18, verse 5. The, word, the name Silvanus 
appears only four times in the New Testament, and two of those are in the, the introduction to First and Second Thessalonians. The first mention of this man is in Acts 15. I want you to go there for just a moment. And I pose another thought for you in a moment. Acts 15:22. Remember in Acts 15 there had been a problem because there were Judaizing teachers who were telling Gentile converts, "You have to be circumcised." according to the law of Moses. And that wasn't true, of course. And so that error needed to be corrected. And, and yet there were some things that needed to be understood as well. Um, the, the Gentile brethren needed to be encouraged. But if you notice in verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch, and incidentally, remember what's significant about Antioch? They were first what? Called Christians at Antioch. And so, and, and we believe that that likely designates that there was a mixed population of Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. And so now the, the name that should apply to all believers, Christians, is there. Send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely, Judas, who was also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And so Silas is already, by the time he's introduced to us, a leading man, one of some reputation and, and, and some uh, standing in the church. Here's what I'm going to throw. It's kind of interesting because we know that, uh, that he was companion of Paul, on that second missionary trip that brought them to Thessalonica, and and he spent time with Paul um, in in Acts 16. Should have just left my hand there. In Acts 16, we we note something else too in verses 37 and 38. This is inferred, okay. Then Paul said to them, they have beaten us, note, openly, uncondemned Romans who had been beaten, Paul and Silas. And so Paul includes Silas as a Roman citizen, just as Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And so he is not only an outstanding man, but he's a Roman citizen. He's a companion of Paul's and obviously was a faithful worker in the Lord, and, and, and here's how we note that. I want you to look at 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. And this is interesting. By Silvanus, Peter says, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Our faithful brother. That's Peter's estimate of him. Paul used him uh, to help him as a companion. We wonder then, why is there no letter till Silvanus? First and second Timothy, letter to Timothy. Why no letter till Silvanus? We don't know that. 
but, but we do know that he was a companion. Well, then we come to Timothy. The, the name means honoring God, and he did. His name appears 24 times in the New Testament, and five of those times there is added to his name our brother, Timothy our brother. He's also called by Paul in his letters, my fellow worker. He's called a true son in the faith. He is called a beloved son. We know that in Acts 16, Paul chooses him to be a traveling companion with him, to go to the field to work with him. And he will be Paul's companion often, evidently. Uh, and he was greatly trusted by Paul. Paul said, I have no man, what, like-minded. I have no one exactly like him who will care for your state. Uh, Timothy was uh, a, a, an excellent worker. And, and he was, of course, with Paul and Silas in Thessalonica when the church began. And so he would be familiar with these people. All three, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, would be familiar with the Thessalonians as this letter is addressed to them. So all three are listed as sending the letter, but within the letter, it's clear that Paul is the one who writes it. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you. And then he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. And so I think it's clear that Paul is really the author, author of this letter. The letter is addressed, chapter 1, verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians. The term church it called out or brought together people is used in more than one way in the New Testament. It's used in an all-inclusive way. That is, all who are a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. Matthew 16, verse Jesus said, I will build my church. That's the all-inclusive body. Or in Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet, gave him to be head over all things to church, which is his body. But the, the, the word church is also used in a geographic way, as it is here, the church of the Thessalonians. I mean, the church belongs to the Thessalonians. It's the church meeting in Thessalonica, composed of Thessalonians. Or we read about the church in Corinth and, and in other places. Now, note, if you will, to the church of the Thessalonians in, notice, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in God. They don't just know about God. They don't just have They are in the Father and in the Son in some sense. Galatians 3.27 mentions being baptized into Christ. Romans 6.3 says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12 says we are all baptized into one body. That is Christ's body. To be in Christ is to be in the church. There are no passages that talk about being in Christ out of the church. Just the way it is. If you are in Christ, you're in His church. If you're in the church, you're in Christ. Because the same thing puts you in Christ and puts you in the church. 
And then he says in verse 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there are several things here that are interesting that happen again and again, that, that God the Father and God the Son are connected together. And incidentally, these, these are not arguments per se, but they certainly lend validity to the idea that the Father and the Son are here together. To, to be in God, to say you're in God and in Christ is not like saying, well, you're in God and you could be in Christ too. They're the same. The Father and the Son are one. Grace and peace. That's Paul's favorite expression. And it appears in every letter that we know he wrote, all 13. Now, in First and Second Timothy and Titus, he adds one other word, and that's the word mercy, grace, mercy, and peace. But all of Paul's letters, he says the same thing, grace and peace to you. And that would touch both Greeks and Jews. It would be inclusive. The word grace, which is unmerited favor, as we normally say it, was a very common Greek salutation. Peace, inner security, was a typical Jewish greeting. Shalom. And so, here is the combination. There are Greeks and Jews together in the Lord's body, and here is a greeting that touches everybody. Grace and peace. This was Paul's desire for them. But both grace and peace, you will notice, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it comes from. That's how you get the grace. It's not just a word, and peace is not just a word. Those things are found in the Father and in the Son. Then you get to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayer. Paul wanted them immediately to understand how special they were to him. He tells that he gives thanks to God for them. Notice, he does it continually. We give God thanks always for you. All the time. The, the, the expression making mention of you indicates according to almost every person who writes about these words, that he was calling them by name in his prayers. If he makes mention of them, he's talking specifically about them. He's not just saying, God bless everybody everywhere. He's praying for the Thessalonians. And we can only imagine, I think, how good that must have made the Thessalonians feel. Just imagine as they read this and say to themselves, isn't that wonderful? Paul is praying for us. This great apostle of God has us in his heart to pray for us always. That speaks well of Paul, but it also speaks well of them. It speaks well of Paul who had so many people in his acquaintance and would be with so many different people that he would specifically pray for them. But it speaks well of them because they were important enough to Paul to be prayed about. Paul's prayers, according to verse 3, were motivated by what he remembered. He says, remembering without ceasing 
your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Paul chose to remember them and what they were and what they were doing. Not, not what had happened to them, to, to him. You know, you know, Paul could have been tortured by the, the idea of, you know, man, I got run out of there. I, I couldn't even stay there. That's all I remember about that place. What an awful place it was. Paul says, no, I remember you. And he, and he specifically mentions three things that he remembers. Their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. And I'm sure that immediately in your mind, you would recall that later on he would write what in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians and verse 13. And now abide, what? Faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So here's the great triumvirate. Uh, as, as Paul would note it, three abiding uh, principles, three abiding worths. Let's see them. Here's a work of faith. Your work of faith. Faith, faith is not passive. It's not simply an intellectual idea that you hold. Faith leads to action. And if it's real faith, it is a working faith. We see that repeatedly in Hebrews 11, don't we? By faith, Abraham, by faith, so on, by faith. You see what they did by faith, their faith worked. But we also read in James' letter that if what we call faith fails to act, it's not real faith. James 2.26, so faith without works is dead also. He just talked about a body being dead, and now he says faith without works is dead too. If it, doesn't, if it doesn't have activity, if it's not vibrant, if it's just intellectually held, it's not really faith. It's dead. Labor of love. This is love exerting itself. The word labor that in the Greek language here is laborious toil. Laborious toil. Not just working Love, it's love that is exerting itself, that's stretching out. Not just words, but words that are of love, a love that is showing itself in all kinds of situations. Patient and hope. Patient and hope is steadfast hope, enduring hope. And, and, and Paul appreciates that because this was going to have to last through suffering. And he knew that was ahead for them. In verse 4 he says, Knowing beloved brethren, and incidentally he uses the term brethren in these two letters I think 24 times. These are his family, his spiritual family. Here they are beloved brethren. brethren. Your election by God. So, so many of the people in the religious world have misunderstood the idea of election. A lot of that was attributable to Augustine, who, who got the balls rolling, and then John Calvin jumped on it and produced a hideous doctrine 
called predestination in which he taught and many, many people accepted it and still accept it today that long before you were born, God had already decided whether you were going to be eternally lost or saved. And that because that was God's predestination of your life, there really was nothing you could do about it. If you were predestined to be lost, you'd be lost. If you were predestined to be saved, nothing could really stop you from being saved. Now Calvin had to sort of flesh that out to, to make it all work the way he wanted it to work. And so he would develop the idea of, of uh, what he would call irresistible grace. God's grace would just get to you and you couldn't resist him. Um, you know, if it's obvious that if God chooses only some to be saved, then he also chooses the rest to be lost. If you choose only some to be saved, you've also made a choice that everybody else is going to be lost. Is that God's choice? No, obviously not. That speaks, you know, the New Testament says God is really not willing that any should perish. That's, that's God's desire, is that nobody be lost. Now, are people going to be lost? Absolutely. That's not God's desire. God didn't want people to be lost. How then are they elected? How are we the elect of God? Well, keep in mind that Israel was God's chosen people. They were elected in nation. Christians are God's chosen people. Individually, we are chosen by our response to the gospel. Look, at Paul will say this himself. I don't know why Calvin didn't read 2 Thessalonians 2.14. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you by the gospel. Incidentally, it's very interesting, um, and, and I've mentioned this before in a class a long, long time ago, Barton Warren Stone of the Restoration Movement was a Presbyterian preacher. Presbyterians are supposed to believe in predestination. Stone, as a Presbyterian preacher, believed in predestination. But you know what he began to question? When we have revivals, why do we have an invitation? If God has already determined somebody's going to be saved and others are going to be lost, why should we invite people to obey the gospel when they can't obey it? Why should we say whosoever will? And, and, and that was one of the factors that made him begin to question, could this doctrine really be true? Or does Jesus really want to save people and that's why we invite them to come? In verse 5 he says, For our gospel, that's the good news of course, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. When he says our gospel, it's not one produced by Paul. It is one preached by Paul. And he would attribute, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Incidentally, notice there just a minute. I wanted to look at this a second. Romans 1.16. So, so familiar to us. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Again, power of salvation, the good news for those who believe. And Paul believed that people could. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, he tells what that gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that is good news. You wouldn't normally think of a death as being good news, but when the death is for the benefit of other people and it offers the promise of salvation for them through that death, you understand it being good news. But the good news doesn't stop with the death because he was also buried but then raised never to die again. The gospel here is not to be thought of only as words, not just just words. Yes, they are words, but they're words with power because the gospel can change people. It had changed the Thessalonians. They knew it. And it had had a real effect on their lives. He's going to show that in a moment. He says here in verse 5, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit worked in them through the word that was delivered to them. But also notice, and in much assurance. Paul was absolutely convicted of the truth of God's word. He knew that what he was preaching was not just a human doctrine, not just a man-made philosophy, that this was the word of God to people. And that's why he could preach it with assurance. I hate to say this, but I think that there are some preachers today who are not really sure of the gospel because they make a lot of excuses for the gospel, what it teaches. They try to find ways to soften it sometimes. When you can't, you you just preach it like it is. Paul says, that they could appeal, or he could appeal to what they knew. He's not just saying, you got to believe me. He's saying, you know this is true. You, you observed us. So they had actual knowledge by acquaintance of what these men were like. And he says, we did this for your sake. Paul and Silas and Timothy were not promoting themselves or their selfish interest. Now, If it was for their sakes, and Paul wants them to understand that, why would that make a difference? Well, because trust is is going to be necessary to accept what Paul says. And and that goes beyond Thessalonians, okay? That that applies to you and me. If, If we do not trust in the inspiration of God's Word, then we're not going to necessarily accept what it says. And of course, much of the liberal religious world questions much of the Bible, whether it's really authentic or whether Paul is just saying what he wants to say. If we don't have trust that this is God's word to us through men, we're not going to necessarily follow what they say. Now, verse 6. Not only did they observe, they actually imitated you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. By by imitating Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, 
they were also imitating the Lord. And Paul did not ask for, nor did he require personal following. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Here's Paul's idea. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul didn't ask for him. He didn't just say imitate me. He said you imitate me as I imitate Christ. And they of course would know if they study God's word, how Christ would have behaved. Now Paul recognized that they had accepted or received the word with difficulty because of those who opposed the gospel. We, we don't know, nor can we know, all the opposition they faced. Was it familial? Was it societal? Uh, was it religious? Uh, we don't know. But we do know they faced it because Paul says they did. You received the word with much affliction, difficulty. I think, I think you and I sometimes forget how many people in the world today still have had to accept the gospel with affliction. It's so easy for us, most of us, so easy. You, you, you didn't have anybody threaten to kick you out of your house if you obeyed the gospel. You, you didn't have anybody threaten to kill you if you obeyed the gospel. But there are people in the world today who have actually had those things happen to them. Cut off completely from their family. You, you, you go with them, you're no longer our child. You go with them, we're going to kill you. But, but here's what's amazing. You receive the gospel with affliction, but what else? With joy. Joy and affliction don't naturally go together. You just don't expect them to. But, but, but it can go together if you recognize what matters most. You think about Paul and Silas in jail in Acts 16 in Philippi. They had been beaten, according to verse 23, with many stripes. And yet verse 25 tells us they were praying and singing hymns. How do you do that? How do you do that when your back is aching because you've been beaten? Because you have joy. The gospel has brought you joy. Acts 5, the apostles were beaten and they were threatened, but verse 41 says they departed, notice, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Rejoicing. Now, in verse 7, Paul commends them, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. The, the word had spread to other places. Now, think about this. Thessalonica was an important place, but it, but it had some real things going for it in that that great highway, the Ignatian Way, came through it. A lot of travel back and forth. It was a ship port. A lot of travel going in and out. And the word got out to other Christians about the Christians in Thessalonica. I think we'd like to hear more good news about other churches, wouldn't we? We sometimes hear bad news. But it'd be wonderful to hear good news. Uh, one more thing, then we quit. 
Note the order here, please. First, imitators, then examples. It's only when there is correct imitation of truth or faithfulness that can lead you to be worthy examples. When you imitate what's right, you can be an example. You don't imitate what's right, you're not a good example. Okay, we're going to begin with verse 8 next week. I promise.